You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back, everyone. I get to start us off this week, which is super exciting. Um... Exciting. Oh. Here we go. How are you doing, Kirk? You know, I'm doing great. It's uh having a having a lovely week. How are you doing? Oh, having a great week as well. It's good times, good friends. Can't go wrong. And all right. And no bed bugs. Oh, and no bed bugs. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll tell the story of why I brought that up uh, oh. in some bonus material for our patrons. Yep. there was an incident many okay anyway (laughs) anyway sorry to bring up the incident oh anyway so this week i want to tell a pretty fun story okay so in september 2022 we're gonna go southwest kirk a couple of researchers okay Southwest of Minnesota. Okay. This is where I orient myself. We're from Minnesota. We're in Minnesota. It's fine. All right. So two researchers. One, uh, a researcher at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, which I'm very positive you are familiar with, as well as... So so this researcher was Jordan Boersma. Uh, co-led okay. an expi- expedition with a another uh, another man, another researcher, who I'm not going to say where he's from because that would give the story away. John C. Mittermeier. Okay. Which I find to be a really fun last name. Mittermeier. They led an expedition to Papua New Guinea. Uh, so they were on a mission uh, to find a bird. Tell. In coordination with the local people of Papua New Guinea, they were looking to find a bird that has not been seen by Western science since two specimens were collected in 1882. Whoa. Yeah. So a bit over about 140 years. Um. That is a long, long time. That is a long time. Uh, however, we these scientists knew that this bird still existed. They were, were pretty sure that it was still around because uh, the locals, especially local hunters uh, on Papua New Guinea, had seen the bird and several times over the past 140 years. So the locals had seen this bird several times over that period of 140 years. And it wasn't unknown to them. In fact, it was pretty important culturally and was, uh, has been featured in their, um, in their local mythology and things as well. But scientists 
just we're the, research science we we want to know more we want to see it we want to document it we want to have hands-on experience and have it written down in a certain way so yeah there's certain kinds of data sure exactly so this uh these two uh jordan boersma and john c mittermeyer uh led a team of eight which was not just scientists but also included local bird nerds and bird experts so they were nice it was about a month-long expedition and Papua New Guinea is not an easy place to lead any sort of expedition. It is a spot where... No, no, it is not. <laughs> there is lots of... There are a lot of mountain regions. It's geothermically active. It's hot. <laughs> the rivers are still, like, cutting through the land. So you're going to be crossing over rivers multiple different times. There's lots of biting insects. There's leeches. There's... This, that, and the other is just an uh, entire mess, right? To try to traverse. Well, I, if you're not I can used add to one it. more thing to that. I know my, my, my friend who was just trying to go there was all worried because uh, he got as far as Singapore and then was going to head over to Papua New Guinea and found out that there was basically like fuel and energy shortages going on. Mm-hmm. And they were basically advising no one to travel there because they were worried there was going to be like riots and and outbreaks of you know instability because of this sh- you know fuel sh- shortage and so they were like yeah maybe now's not the time to go and Oof. he was kind of like i'm already almost there what do you mean now's not-? it's not like he did get to go just not to all the places he wanted to in papua new guinea but right it's a very challenging part of the world uh to travel to absolutely so this group uh was working, setting up camera traps, working with local hunters, working with local bird experts, trying to get any sort of sign that this bird this was still there. All right. So it's a month-long expedition. They're looking. They're looking at all their cameras. They're checking the traps. On the second to last day before they left. What'd they get? They got a video of this bird. Um, Doka Nason was the local bird expert who actually set up this trap. And they were able to capture for the first time in 140 years the black-naped pheasant pigeon. Black-naped. Pheasant pigeon. That's quite a name. It truly is. Um, and it was first described in 1882 in Western Science. And honestly, everyone was super excited. Um, John Mitt- Mittermeier, who is the director of the Lost Birds program at the American Bird Conservancy, hence why I didn't tell you where he was from. He <laughs> Said, and I quote. I assume, first, I assume meant like not what country he was from, not what his organization was. <laughs> no. <laughs> that makes sense now. Okay. Uh, he said, and I quote, to find something that's been gone for that long, you're thinking it's almost extinct. And then to figure out that it's not extinct, it feels like finding a unicorn or a Bigfoot. 
They were so excited. Like, yeah, I mean, a unicorn or a Bigfoot that people who live there are telling you they see all the time. But yeah. Right. But it was a it was still a rediscovery and they couldn't have done it without the local oh, yeah, hunters sure. knowledge, you know, um, because they were able to point to where they would probably cool. be found. So this bird, uh, generally speaking, is probably one of the most endangered birds in New Guinea, actually. Uh, it doesn't have much uh, when it comes to habitat, what it needs. It is a ground-dwelling bird. Uh, it's called black naped because it, it looks like okay. it has this really big black collar. Think of a pigeon. It, it's pretty much a mm-hmm. pigeon and a pheasant, which to me, a pheasant already kind of looks like a pigeon. So it's a pr- it is a large pigeon with rusty brown um a rusty brown head rusty brown like wings and butt and tail and underneath belly and then in like a really wide collar is it is a black like collar around its neck nape area cool yeah so I just wanted to share this uh, story of uh, finding this bird. It was a collaboration. They were try there. It's part of a group um, trying to find. It's it's called uh, the search for lost birds, and their whole plan is to try to rediscover more than a hundred. 50 avian species that have been declared extinct, but wow. also have been seen for at least a decade. So this, uh, for example, this uh, black nape pigeon hadn't been seen for over 140 years. So it's like it, pro- it hadn't been declared extinct, but we hadn't seen it. It could uh, have been, yeah. But it could have been. And th- it's really cool. The video that they got, and uh, this is very similar to when... Uh, I did a story, I think it came out on June 1st this past year, of this giant, like, bee. Or no, that's when, it was end of May. It was this huge, large bee bee that uh, they hadn't been able to find forever. This is a similar uh, idea where the researchers and the locals, everyone was so excited that they were able to find this chicken-sized pigeon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just so excited and the video they got they actually saw like the whole bird and you see like the uh it actually fanned its tail feathers and everything and it you looked at it and it was oh cool a black naped pigeon so it this is just a really cool uh fun thing it's so cool to redis- sort of rediscover, if you will, some of these species. A lot of times you had someone who went to an area, did a bunch of collection, and they were there for a short period of time. And they may have just happened to collect a single bird of a certain species. And you don't really know, is this something that was super common? Or do they just mm-hmm. happen to catch a super rare bird? And so right. you come back a couple hundred years later and you're like, you know, no one's really looked. Maybe they're just everywhere. Or maybe you know, they happen to get one of the last ones or even something there's been some debate over. I know is there's mm-hmm. certain species in some of these specimen collections and stuff where they either have a, a photo of it or a drawing or an actual specimen. And you're like, 
is this just like a weird hybrid yeah, that is someone this... caught? And the reason no one has found one is that there it was the they only one because like it was that. like a one-off <laughs> hybrid between two yeah, between two species that don't normally interbreed. So it's mm-hmm. such a complex thing to know like, is this a species that went extinct or was this an oddity that happened to be captured and it was sort of a one-off and we're looking for something that never really existed? So it's a fascinating, fascinating topic. We can probably uh, I, I imagine we'll share about this sort of thing more on the show, too. We absolutely will. But that's all I have for you this week. Uh, I just wanted to share a little bit about the rediscovery of the black naped pheasant pigeon, uh, which is a very large name cool, for a decent sized bird, actually. Uh, even though we truly don't know much else about this bird we've gotten video we know where it lives and that's about it (laughs) which i think is fascinating Uh, like to not know more about a bird like i like of all the things to not know much about like i feel like birds like insects we're learning all the time there's so many species but birds they're everywhere it's wild anyway That's a rant for another time. We're going to take a break. And when we return, (laughs) Kirk has something for us. All right. So welcome back, everybody. This week, I have to admit, I was going to talk about a strange underwater creature. Ooh. But I got sidetracked thinking about water. So uh, we'll get to the creature maybe next week or or sometime soon. But I hope so. I love underwater creatures. I know you do. And I was thinking, you know, you did a very Kirk topic last week. I did. And you did a very Kirk topic this week. I kind of wish I had actually stuck with that topic because it would have been really nice. Uh, (laughs) But no, you have to wait till next week, maybe. Okay. Uh, Or maybe I'll get sidetracked into some other fascinating topic and won't get to it. But. That um, happens a lot to us. You know, yeah. So I was reminded recently that I live in a strange place. And doing a show called Strange by Nature and working as a professional naturalist, mm-hmm. surrounded by nature all day long, this strange thing happens where I need to remind myself what strange is. Because the things that we all see every day, while they may seem, seem, seem commonplace to us, are likely strange to someone else. And this is true for all of us, not just. You know, people who are out in nature all day, mm-hmm. you get used to the things you see all the time and don't realize that maybe a certain plant in your yard, even the type of grass or the type of trees may oh. seem strange to somebody else who's not from your area. Oh, that happens to me all the time. Like I have a bunch of non-naturalist friends. So like we'll be walking I'm like, uh-huh. oh, this is they'll be like, oh, what is this thing? This is so weird. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's just like, like, like this wood soil. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> what that's not weird and they're like i've never seen this before i'm like it's literally everywhere it's anyway. it's grown out of the crack in the sidewalk yeah uh-huh and so that's the thing what what can be strange is is open to interpretation i mm-hmm. think for another example that came to mind is the the great golden digger wasps that i mentioned way back i think in like episode four or something yeah. like that the episode was called love Mi- Micro Epilons and Assorted Nightmare Fuel. <laughs> really fun episode if you want to check it out. Yeah. Um, these wasps are fascinating and bizarre, but to me, they're, they're like so cool. I see them 
pretty much every day at work. They're like mm-hmm. right outside the door. So, you know, it's not what you're used to. And I was I was reminded of something like this recently when I had an old friend come visit. Uh, my friend Katie, who I've known since high school, came to visit last month. And while she grew up here, uh, she has most recently lived in Colorado for a while. And mm-hmm. that's quite different to Minnesota habitat-wise. Yes. And as she was driving around the part of the state that I live in, um, she commented on how she was just blown away by all of the lakes. And <laughs> Minnesota is known, of course, as the land of 10,000 lakes. It's uh-huh. sort of our state, you know. Isn't it more like 13,000 or, uh, or something? You know, I thought the number I had in my head, I looked it up. I guess the most recent number is 11,842. Okay. Um, when you use sort of the standard definition of lake set by the state. But if you mm. just go by like a general definition of a, a body of water, uh, you end up including lakes that are smaller than 10 acres. In Minnesota, we're pretty stodgy about like, if it's not 10 acres, we don't even count it. Whereas other states would be like, <laughs> are you kidding me? That's like the biggest <laughs> lake we have in town, right? Yeah, so right. Um, if you actually just go by all the, you know, bodies of water and whatnot, mm-hmm. you end up with about 124,662 lakes in Minnesota. <laughs> so that's a lot. That is a lot. That's a super lot. Um, people, if you've never been here, they're everywhere, right? And this is what really kind of blew my friend away, who oh, now yeah. lives out of state, even though she grew up here. Uh-huh. When she came back, she just kept commenting on how everything was so green and there's just water everywhere. And I had to laugh because yeah. we were in the middle of like a huge drought and things were right. looking yellow to me. <laughs> and the lakes were all looking low. But she was just blown away by all the water. And, and she grew up here, right? But right. I think maybe coming back as an adult, it really started to strike her like, oh my gosh, I didn't think of it when I was a kid. But now driving through, you're like, look at all these lakes. So I did a mm-hmm. quick little look at Google Maps to check this all out. It takes me 18 minutes to drive 12 miles from my house to my work. I tried to count all the bodies of water within like a mile of the road on that drive. And I lost count somewhere around 42. 42. That is much larger than I thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) Between my house and my work, which is only 12 miles away. Uh, So I, I looked at that. That means on my 18 minute commute, I'm passing about two and a half lakes per minute on my commute. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, there's a lot of lakes around There's a here. lot of lakes. Um, so the question, and I don't think of that as strange, right? No. But for people in a lot of the parts of the country, that is completely and utterly bizarre that we just have lakes everywhere. I mean, so, I live, I live, I see the largest lake by surface area on the planet. Every day. <laughs> right. And that also is just a totally weird thing. But even mm-hmm. up where you are, there's a lot of lake. There's, there are, there's, there's a lot of lakes up in northern Minnesota, too. Oh, Depends yeah. Depends on exactly which part of the state you're in. Some parts have more than others. But the, the whole Boundary Waters area, for example, is just littered with so many lakes you can hardly count them. So the question is, oh. why? What strange so thing happened that caused there to be so many lakes here? While some other states have almost none. And the answer is ice. Lots okay. and lots of ice. I was and wondering if you were going to say something about... Summer about too. Yeah, like, you were, I thought you were going to maybe bring up glaciation. 
Yeah. So during the last ice age, it snowed all winter and it snowed all summer too. Massive, get this, mile thick glaciers, a mile or Mm -hmm. places two miles thick, right? Covered much of Minnesota. Um, And this ice age lasted something something like two million years. So so it's really only been the last 10,000 years that Minnesota has been free from glaciers. And uh, Minnesota is located in a really interesting spot in that we are where, at least in the last most recent glaciation, we are where the glaciers stopped. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to simplify here a bit because the topic of glaciation is super complex. But I want you to picture a bulldozer with a front plow that is like two miles tall and hundreds of miles (laughs) wide. That's basically what a glacier is, moving in extreme slow motion. It inches south and just wipes out everything in its path over the course of thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Uh Um, The earth is being scraped clean down to bedrock. And at the leading edge of that glacier, though, you're going to get all kinds of debris being pushed along. Mm -hmm. And as glaciers started and stopped and started and stopped as they retreated and advanced and changed direction, you know, the landscape at the leading edge became a real mess. Picture like piles of rocks, massive broken chunks of ice, essentially landbergs. Uh, you know, picture mm-hmm. huge long hillsides and tons and tons and tons of sand. So as the glaciers advanced and retreated and changed course, they did this over and over and over right on top of Minnesota, especially the part of Minnesota where I live. Mm-hmm. And so it made a real mess of the landscape. But it was about to get weirder and real melty. So uh, <laughs> when, like, uh, as, I guess as the glaciers began their final retreat, right? They didn't just melt and leave in, like, a nice orderly fashion. The leading edge right. melted away unevenly, leaving behind even more landbergs, uh, these big chunks of ice that have broken off, which could be just absolutely massive. Right. And as the main body of the glacier is melting huge amounts of sand and rocks that have been picked up over millions of years are melting out and flowing south in massive amounts of water. And so this muddy, sandy, rocky meltwater encounters these landbergs uh, and they became surrounded by water that deposited the rocks around the ice, you know, as the, as the water has to slow down to go around that ice, that landberg, some right. of the heavier sediments starts to fall out uh, toward the, the, the bedrock. And so when these landbergs eventually melted shortly thereafter, you could see where they had been as new land had been built up around them as all this debris trying to get away from the melting glaciers got deposited there. Wild. And the depressions left behind by the landbergs became lakes. And a really mm-hmm. interesting thing to do around these parts where I live is you can walk around a lake. And this is true for uh, quite a few northern states. Uh, oh, yeah. in the U.S. or even other parts of the world where there are glaciers. If you walk around in these areas or even just look at a, a topo map, you can see that nearly every lake in this region has hills around it. And those hills are usually higher on the north side. So you can literally tell what, what direction the melted you know, water with sand and rock came from mm-hmm. because it piled up more on the side that it, it was, it was coming from. So you you know, it's like, which side of this lake has a bigger hill? Oh, that side. 
that's the direction that the uh, the water was coming from as the glaciers were melting. It's not always from the north because you know things were getting all twisty and turny, and you had if you had tons of Lambergs all in one spot, which you very much did right by my house. Uh, right. The water was taking all kinds of cra- kinds of crazy paths, and you got all a bunch of really weird patterns. So, uh, in this way, like we can reconstruct what happened here ten thousand years ago, which really blows my mind. These are events that happened long, long ago. But with just a little observation, we can piece together like where ancient rivers were and tell these complex stories of what happened on the landscape and and why it looks the way it does. You know, like, why is that hill there? Why is that lake there? You can figure out the answer, which I think is so, so cool. So I guess really fundamentally, you know, I was going to talk about this strange underwater creature, but when I really got to think about water, somehow it has got on this topic and I couldn't get out of my head. Like, what a strange story it is that we had landbergs. 10,000 years ago that are now responsible for the 10,000 lakes that we brag about right. in Minnesota today. So I thought it's kind of a cool so uh, wild. You know, connection there. Uh, you know, really, the so- yeah. my sources this week talking about this was my brain, uh, mm-hmm. but also uh, PolitiFact <laughs> uh, was, I was, was where I was able to track down uh, that 124,000 lakes number. So thank mm-hmm. you to them for helping calculate that. They had a great story about uh, an ongoing debate between Minnesota and Wisconsin over who has more lakes. Oh, and, Minnesota, uh, obviously. Minnesota says, look, we, we've... Well, Wisconsin, they, they, they claim, they go, well, look, we... Um, you guys officially say you have 11,000-some. We officially, our official count is 15,000. So we win. No. Like, well, yeah, but you guys define lakes different than we do. And when you... Yeah, if we use you your version... Definition... We have like what would I say a hundred hundred and twenty four thousand so yeah something um, like that yeah we uh sorry Wisconsin we we still win yeah uh, we do so anyways that's what I've what got what a point this of week, pride that we all have as Minnesotans like no 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 we got the most we lakes. have the lakes we yeah. have the lakes <laughs> I think I remember hearing there's so many lakes in Minnesota if you were to like measure all of the shoreline there's like more shoreline in the state of Minnesota than there is in the entire continental coast of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Only Alaska has a seat so, in shoreline. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty wild. Yeah. So anywho, that's, that's what I have. <laughs> Thank you everyone for spending time with us and hearing Thanks, about everyone. whatever strange natural history stuff pops into our brain. We'll be back next week. You know, who's back next week? Victoria. Victoria's back. We're so excited to see her uh, then, and you'll get to hear her as well. Everybody, just thanks have everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing thanks this strange everyone. world with Bye. all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.